Hello everyone and welcome back to Revolution Solution. This is Cody and I want to make sure you all know about these referral links that we have. These are not paid sponsors, just referral codes for services Jared and I already use. So for me I've got the Fold app. Uh, Fold is a prepaid debit card that earns you sats back with every purchase. You can order a physical card and swipe for everyday purchases or use your Fold balance to purchase gift cards in app for special rewards with different vendors like Amazon, Home Depot, Chipotle, and more. My link will give you 5,000 sats upon sign up and you can withdraw them once you hit 50,000 sats in the app that you've gotten back in rewards. One of my favorite parts is that it is sats back and not some rewards point scheme that cashes out at the end so you can buy the dip by spending more when the price is down. Those sats are your yours regardless of what the Bitcoin price is doing. Uh, for Jared, he's got the ButcherBox link. Uh, get 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood on a monthly subscription subscription plan with options for customization. $30 off your first order and free bacon for a year. Jared loves this product. They have never had a late or missed shipment, shipment and it is always ice cold when it gets there because it is packed with dry ice. I can tell you I know several people personally who use ButcherBox and have never heard a bad review. So thank you so much for listening to our show, and please enjoy. Welcome to Revolution Solution providing you with solutions for your revolution to be a free person in an unfree world. Join us in our pursuit of sovereignty through permaculture, technology, and community. All right, everybody, welcome back to Revolution Solution. This is your host, Jared. And this is Cody. And today we are speaking with a friend of mine named Tori. Don't know how many names he wants to give out, so we'll leave it at that. Um, Tori is a local permaculture designer, physical therapist, ballet dancer, man who wears many hats. Um, we brought Tori on today to talk some about permaculture, kind of piggybacking off the last episode and getting a little bit deeper but still kind of just relating it to beginner's level um so tori if you want to do any introductions we'll jump into questions after that oh, that was a perfect intro i appreciate you uh, having me out here today yeah i am a permaculture designer amateur uh, licensed physical therapist i was a professional ballet dancer that's kind of how i got into physical therapy all my injuries uh, yeah, amateur disc golfer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm your regular uh, hipster, so uh, ready to go. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Well, if I'm ever out there, I'm gonna definitely hit you up for some disc golf. You got it, man. Awesome. I know all the parks here. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so, Tori, how did you get started with permaculture? Uh, you know, interesting story there. It actually started with a skin infection. I had a skin infection from martial arts. I had a staph infection. And I was on this Ferris wheel of uh, antibiotics, 
and eventually one of the antibiotics got me really sick. Uh, I found out I was allergic to sulfa drugs. I had to go to the emergency room, get the, get the, the adrenaline shot, the whole deal. And it was uh, that whole experience that really just got me upset with the, uh, the pharma pharmacological industrial complex. And what I really wanted to do after that point was learn to grow my own medicine. So getting into permaculture started with just growing herbs, growing oregano, growing elderberry, growing rosemary. And then I kind of fell into this gardening style of permaculture, like growing those things brought me to a different way of how to grow those things and grow them all together in a, in a nice little symbiosis so that these herbs and plants that I was growing can work together. So uh, interesting enough, I kind of got into permaculture, you know, getting fed up with the pharmacological industrial complex, wanting to grow my own medicine. And then from there, uh, it started with, well, I guess I can grow my own food too. You know, food is uh, the best medicine. So uh, kind of fell into it that way. Uh, that happened about eight years ago. And awesome. uh, I've been gardening. Yeah, so I've kind of been implementing some of those uh, design principles for over eight years now. That's awesome. Nice. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely an unexpected story. Yeah. <laughs> Cody, do you have something? Um, no, I was just going to go on to the next one. I don't... Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, so what, what sorts of designs do you have, uh, going on at your home or at, uh, lock layers? You've got a, was it, it's a garden store that you're working with? Like what, what kind of uh, yeah, things so, do you do? I guess is what we're asking. Gotcha. I'll just give a general layout of what's going on. So I started eight years ago at my, uh, where I live now, my property, mm -hmm. and it's 2000 square feet in the suburbs, pretty small little plot but I definitely tried to implement as many permaculture design elements that I could. Water harvesting, uh, swale digging to store water in the land, uh, getting animal husbandry, having chickens and rabbit tractors. Um, so I started on a really small scale at my home site and I did that for about two and a half years. And uh, during that time I was buying chicken feed for my chickens at uh, a local farm, Locklayer's Farm. And the owner there expressed an interest in doing a garden in her space. Now she's a third generation owned feed and seed store. And she had this old horse pasture behind the shop that hadn't been used for anything for years. So she expressed an interest in doing a garden. And I said, hey, I'll design it for you for free. If you like the design that we draw up and graph out, then we'll implement it and we'll go from there. So uh, you know, I took some time. I did the observation on her site. It was a little bit bigger than what I'm dealing with at my home site. I'd say it's about half an acre on a hillside. It's uh, an odd growing space. It's not completely flat. So it does lend itself to uh, more earthworks and more water harvesting techniques that we could use out there. Mm -hmm. But I designed that property for her. Uh, of course, did a sit down with her, talked about it, showed her the, the, the blueprints that I had drawn out, showed her the topographical maps I had pulled up, showed her the sun charts that I had pulled up, and you know, just did the full permaculture design consultation with her, and she gave me the thumbs up. So we kind of implemented the design uh, basically six years ago. And we started with earthworks, basically. I mean, just to... Uh, you know, we, we didn't start six years ago putting plants in the ground. You know, we, right. there's a lot of setup when it comes to a permaculture garden. Ideally, you do all the hard work up front, 
so that you can step back and then let Mother Nature do what she does best, which is grow. Um, you know, ideally, you want to just get the place set up so Mother Nature can do what she does best. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, get get some swales, some trenches dug in, or even some key line design if we had a bigger property. Um, but I've been eight years here at my home site. I have incorporated as much of the permaculture design elements that I could and uh, implemented a few more at the project site in Locklairs starting about six years ago. So gotcha. I'm eight years on here at home and six years on at Locklairs right now. Okay. Beautiful. So I, I guess that is what I was going to ask you, um, how long the actual setup took? Like, was it just... Um, construction basically on the first year or uh, what kinds of things did you plant first like how did you get that started good question uh, yeah so the setup going by the process that the book lays out we did all the earthworks first just getting mm -hmm. the land ready uh, certainly we did some soil testing it was good soil that she had there so we didn't have to do much of amending to the soil um, once again, it was an old cow pa uh, horse pasture, so the soil was really, really good, real fertile soil. It was really about preparing the, the growing space that we could put plants in the ground. <clears throat> so we pulled out topographical maps, and uh, one of my favorite parts about the whole thing was just doing some of that early surveying. And, you know, we didn't get a surveying crew out there. You know, we had a dumpy level and the surveyor stick, and me and Alex, the manager at the time, uh, literally just kind of walked along the hillside using a map and using this dumpy level watch walking forward and back Okay, you're level right. We'd make a mark. We'd take a couple feet to the side walk forward. Okay. There's the mark We'd mark it and flag it so Getting the the, the swales on contour the trenches on contour set up. It took us a weekend just marking it out um, because it's a small space, getting it dug up was really quick. You know, it's a farm. Sammy had access to a tractor. So the tractor guy came in one afternoon with a, uh, a plow that would just turn the soil, flip it over. Mm -hmm. And he saw our lines and just drove down those lines, flipped the soil over, dug a nice little trench in the ground. Um, that happened in an afternoon. And then throughout the rest of the, the fall and winter, we started this at the end of the summer. So going through the fall and winter, we kind of cleaned up those trenches, dug them a little deeper. Uh, we planted cover crops on there, kind of getting clover, vetch out there. We threw out some fall crops like kale, collards, just to start vegetable gardening out there. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't even plant the first tree in the ground until the spring of the following year. So six years ago, I, I guess it was 2014 we started. And in 2015, we actually did start putting plants in the ground. So uh, at least for that half acre you know, plot, it didn't take us long to get set up. And a lot of that setup, that infrastructure that we set up is still there to this day. We, we maybe maintenance it a little bit once a year, but for the most part, once we had those trenches dug on contour, uh, it, it ran itself, you know, mother nature did, did the rest. And it, it looks like patties, you know, I, I say, I'm saying trenches, I'm saying swales, these are all probably new terms for people who mm -hmm. know nothing. About, about permaculture in general, but we put trenches on contour. If you've ever seen a contour map, that top-down map that's got the little lines that show where level is, we kind of dug on those lines uh, going down the hill, making 20 and 30-foot size, basically patties. So if you can picture a rice patty in your head, that's kind of what this hillside looked like. We kind of terraced out the land like a rice patty, 
so that we could store water in the land. Uh, just to kind of give you a good visualization of what it looks like. Yeah, gotcha. that's a good description. Yeah, you're really yeah. like, uh, before I'm even asking the question, you're answering them, so. Um, awesome, cool. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've got swales. Um, what, I guess, what's a, what are some highlights of things you might have learned in the process? Were you using one of those, something I thought of earlier, were you using one of those like A-frame levels? Is that what you mean? Like the thing with the swinging? Yeah, what, how does that at, work? Describe that. Now at my home, at my home site, I used an A-frame level. Now this is mm -hmm. like small scale, once again, 3,000 square feet. So I did make yep. an A-frame level with, with, with a weight on it and I did walk around my house and you know turn the a-frame around to try to find level but out at the farm site we had a, a dumpy level I think is the uh, maybe is Jared the has a better term, term for okay. it but, yeah I haven't heard uh, that one before okay it, 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 it's so my buddy Alex was on the viewer and I had a long pole with the the measurements on it and he had level on the viewer and he was looking down the hill and with my ruler I could walk forward oh. and back to find level Oh, I don't okay. know what that's called in surveyor yep. terms. Yeah, we uh, in in surveying class in school, we always just called it a level. Like <laughs> it was just that simple. But dumpy level, okay. yeah, apparently that uh, that's the more specific yeah. name for it. Yeah, right. I know. I know there's laser. There's easier ways to do that. I know there's laser levels out there, mm -hmm. but uh, what we had was given to us for free. So here again, a, a lot of what we did was free stuff. You know, uh, donated time. I mean, the majority of this project is borrowed, free um, resources from the community. I mean, this is a very low input project that we got going on. So, you know, when we put the word out that, hey, we need some way to find level on this land, somebody had donated the, uh, the viewer for us and the, the poll. <laughs> nice. Um, so for me, having never done surveying, that was actually a pretty interesting thing to do. Um, some of the other interesting things was actually just seeing those trenches dug on contour actually work. So shortly thereafter uh, that we got this all set up, we had a hurricane come through and it was cool to see all these trenches fill up with water and kind of stay filled for a couple days. Uh, but not only were they filled, we could go into between the trenches, you know, dig a hole in the paddy, you know, about two or three feet deep and we were able to do percolation tests. So we could see water percolating through the subsoil in between the swale mounds that we have dug. So in the paddies, we definitely had water percolation. You know, water was sinking into the landscape, spreading across the landscape, and slowly moving its way downhill in the subsoil. So it was really cool to kind of see those things work in practice before we even ever put a tree into place. Oh, that's awesome. So you you can actually verify that what you're doing works. Yeah. Yes. I mean, when you're hold, when you have a trench that grows across a half acre hillside, you're holding back probably a few thousand gallons of water. We're talking lots and lots of water is being held up and it's really heavy. And I mean, all it does is just sink into the landscape and slowly creep its way down through the subsoil. So that was one of the most interesting things to see on a grand scale, how swales work. Now, mm -hmm. at my home site, a little bit different. They're smaller. It's a little tighter. It works kind of the same, but on a, a half acre hillside, it was much more dramatic. Uh, so that was a really interesting permaculture principle to see in practice. Nice. Getting so, those water per percolation. Yeah, so how deep would you say you dug those? Just so we can get an a uh, idea. Our swales, first off, our swales were probably about a foot below the surface and they've got a, a nice mound, probably a foot tall. 
Okay, so, so that's this all track. it takes to make that much water stay where it is. That, yeah, just to yep. put that into perspective uh, from the listener side. One yeah, I, I definitely, I've got, I've got videos on my YouTube channel. You know, I've got a lock layers playlist that people can go through from beginning to end where the project started to where it's at now. And I've got videos of those swales totally full. I've got videos of those percolation tests that we did. You know, in between the trenches, we dug two feet down. So, you know, a one foot little trench depression, we could dig two feet down and still see water percolating up. So it really does hold back a lot of water. I mean, especially in South Carolina where we live, it's really dry and hot in the summer. So we really needed a way to store water in the landscape the best we could. Yep. And what have you got at the top of the hill there to supplement when the rain gets sparse? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Good. Yeah, we have a donated education center that we call it. It's, it's just a big garage, you know, a big tin garage, you know, two car garage frame that somebody had donated to us. And uh, we've got probably six 300-gallon IBC totes uh, on either side of that education center. So the water that is caught, we're, we're catching water off of that education center into these 300-gallon totes. So six of them on each side times 300, that's 1,800 gallons times two. And we use that water to supplement uh, our watering. Now, there's a property next door as well with a pond on it. There's a one-acre pond that we can also pump water from. We got a small solar pump that, if needed, we can pump water from that pond into our swale heads and basically fill them up. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely doing some water catchment there. Of, you know, of course, another permaculture principle, how much water can we store? And mm -hmm. we're storing it at the top of the hill. Obviously, we're using gravity to feed that water down the hill. I mean, it wouldn't have been smart to put the water at the bottom of the hill. We would have had to pump it back up. So right. you know, just part of the design process, we knew that we needed gravity-fed water, so we did that water catchment at the top of mm -hmm. our hill there. Yeah, that's it so, is so, thinking, so... Oh, go ahead. Thinking about everything. Yeah, yeah. thinking about everything. I mean, it's just For the design sure. element. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, that's something we said in our last episode was like the first permaculture thing is just the mindset of what do you have in your backyard that you're not using and you've got all this water that falls on your property so many times a year and where does it go you know so if you're catching it that's that's permaculture yeah number one it's great and uh you know just a story on the water catchment i got at my house i have three of those 300 gallon ibc totes so I've got about 900 gallons of water storage plus some extra storage. I effectively have 1,000 gallons of water storage off the back of my house. And just a story, it came in handy when we had a major uh, flood come through here, I don't even know, probably six, seven years ago, and the water was out. You know, we had no water for a couple days, so we were able to use that water. You know, it's not just water for the garden. I've got ways to purify that water with charcoal filters, water purification tablets, and there was, we used that water to wash ourselves. You know, we didn't drink from it, but I could have if I needed to. So it's not just for a garden. It's a survival tactic as well. I mean, you want to kind of broaden your horizons. You know, I'm storing water for the garden, but if you need it to survive, it's also there as well. Absolutely. It's really crazy seeing that, that little carport at Locklayers filling so many IBCs because I've got, you know, we started just a few years ago putting a 50-gallon rain barrel off of one of our gutters because for some reason in South Carolina, no house has gutters anywhere. We just had a small stretch of gutter. And it, I mean, 10 minutes of rain fills the 50-gallon barrel. 
Yeah, I mean, it fills quick around here. I mean, we get torrential downpour. So, I mean, our, our biome is actually a subtropical temperate forest. So we're a temperate forest because we get freezing temperatures, but we're also considered semi-subtropical because we, we get the rainfall of a place like northern Florida. So we're kind of in this in-between zone where we're, we're almost like Florida, but we're still kind of got this touch of the north because we get this frost that kills everything off every year. So we, we've got a wide range of things that we can grow here in South Carolina. Nice. Absolutely. Um, so going back to some of the things we had put in here, um, what, what were some things that were unexpected or challenging with your property or with Locklays? Um, good question. Uh, I would like to think that I plan for every <laughs> eventuality. You know, you, you try to. That's what the whole, you know, permaculture design manual is for. Um, I, I think, honestly, once we got to planting at the farm, you know, having to deal with, okay, this tree didn't really do well here. We had some, some, some loss. Um, you know, just being able to adapt and overcome to loss of trees or shrubs because maybe we put them in the wrong spot. Um, here again, we did soil testing beforehand, so I kind of knew where the most acidic soil was in the property, and I was able to grow blueberries there. But I also knew where the most basic and neutral soil was, so we were able to grow, you know, the crops that like that kind of soil in, in those positions as well. You know, here again, a lot of the work for a permaculture forest comes up front. You're going to be doing a lot of work in the design process. You're going to be learning uh, how the sun tracks across the sky throughout the whole year. You're going to be learning where your shady areas are, where your sunny areas are. You're going to be learning where your soil types are. And this is all stuff that gets done before you even put a plant in the ground, before you even talk about what should I be growing. It really, you want to know how you should be growing in any particular site. Um, so challenging at the farm, I think, is going to be uh, just losing stuff, you know, and having to replace it. That was kind of a, you know, a hit. Um, I, I would say that I wish we did a little bigger swales, wider meaning, so that um, at this point in the game that we had better handicap access, mm. believe it or not. So we've been doing tours there, and, and it's, there's pretty good pathway walking around the whole farm site there. But, you know, for handicap access, it's tough to kind of get people down into those swales and kind of walking through, you know, this, this thick, dense uh, brush that's starting to grow. So yeah. maybe I'd make my swales a little wider, you know, have some handicap access. That was mm -hmm. something that kind of came to my head as we were doing tours this year. Um, yeah. I think a challenge that I had at my home site is uh, sun, sun exposure. So I'm in a suburban area. Um, I don't get a lot of sun exposure. I'm very limited as to what I can grow on my home site. I can't really grow nut trees because there's just not enough sunlight. They need a lot of sunlight. They need a lot of space. So uh, at my home site, I'm really growing a, a mixed variety of fruit trees and fruit shrubs and vegetables, and that's about it. So I, I can feed myself with what I grow here. But getting like the protein that you need from nuts, it, it's kind of tough to kind of provide that for myself here on my home site. So I'm kind of challenged with sunlight exposure here. Not at the farm. It's a wide open farm. So Yeah, gotcha. it's a great spot to put in the garden there. I've got the same issues yeah. with sun at my place. We're treed to the east, west, and south. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when I got to my home site, you know, we took down a whole bunch of pine trees. And there's still a few pine trees to take down around us that would 
kind of help us get a little more, you know, direct sunlight during the mm -hmm. afternoon. But, you know, the biggest challenge for me in my home site was working with less sun exposure. I think the biggest challenge at the farm was just dealing with loss, you know, and that, that's, that's going to happen. You know, you're going to buy trees and they're not all going to get established. So you know, dealing with sure? the loss and figuring out how do I adapt and change and then add something new the, the following year. Absolutely. Probably the biggest challenges. So I know we talked recently about um, sort of the way maintenance at the farm is changing at this time of year. So I know just, uh, I guess it's been a couple months back now, we were doing a lot of chop and drop um, at yep. this time of year. What's some of that ongoing maintenance look like? Awesome. Yeah. So I try to do a really big chop and drop maybe twice a year. Uh, maintenance in a permaculture garden should be low, 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 low maintenance. I, I consider it lazy man gardening. Like, if, if you want to do something, you can, but ideally let Mother Nature do what she does best and just grow. Um, twice a year, we try to do a big chop and drop where we're chopping down all the, the, the weeds, the clover that we've been growing, and we, we chop it and drop it on site, and then we try to wood chip right over it. And we're, we're kind of layering our green material and brown material and green material and brown material. And in essence, we're composting on site. We're kind of building soil doing this. In the end of the spring, once all the clover we planted in the fall is done and dead, we chop it, we drop it, and we wood chip over it, kind of give the place a sterile look for uh, the summer and into the fall. Uh, when we get to the end of fall and things like the goldenrod are done blooming, uh, we uh, chop and drop again. We kind of chop and drop the weeds under all the trees. We chop them, we drop them, and we try to wood chip again. At that time here, like right now, this time of year, we're actually seeding out clover and vetch, some you know nitrogen-fixing cover crops mm -hmm. that are going to grow through the winter, take us into spring, flower through spring for the bees. You know, we got bees there too, so the bees need these these flowers, and you know the whole process starts again. We'll chop and drop in the spring wood chip over it. So twice a year, we kind of get work parties out there for a weekend to chop, to drop, and to wood chip over the whole area. And as far as maintenance goes, that's probably the biggest maintenance on a yearly basis, these two work parties that we do. Um, smaller maintenance is, you know, pruning. It's fall, so I'm doing a lot of pruning and cleaning up and maybe pulling down some vines that have gotten out of control. Uh, but pruning is done on mother nature's time I'm, I'm you know as soon as things die that's time to pull it down you know as the, the the annual weeds are dying i'm pulling them down i'm not trying to pull them as they're growing because they'll just grow right back up you make yourself go crazy so we work with the weeds here you know i know people don't like to see a weedy garden but weeds are good for a garden and uh I know a lot of people that say weeds are misunderstood plants. You know, weeds mm -hmm. are dynamic accumulators. It's, it's nitrogen that you can use to help build soil. So uh, we let the weeds grow annually, and we chop them down when the time is right. Um, Absolutely. That's basically, that's basically it for the maintenance, honestly. Once again, once it's been set up, we've kind of stepped back and let Mother Nature do what she does best, which is just grow. I mean, we, we've done our part to kind of get the area set up, and now we kind of step back and observe and kind of maybe adjust as needed. Right. So most of the work you're doing other than those two things is just harvesting at that point. Just going yeah, to the we're harvesting. Store, you know? 
Yeah. Basically, and that's what that's what it's been feeling like a lot these last two years. Uh, harvesting, packaging, selling. Sammy's been selling a lot of at least the smaller fruits so far. Um, we're at the point now where trees are starting to throw up runners. So I'm tagging those trees for the spring to kind of be able to pull them up and sell them as, as stock. So, you know, a permaculture garden has a lot of different income streams. You know, it's not just the food that we're selling. I mean, we got trees that we're going to be able to sell in the spring as well. So there's lots of different ways to, to get money, quote unquote, or get that money, get that paper mm -hmm. on a permaculture garden. You know, we've done a lot of tours this year and, you know, so far they've been free. Now, if we wanted to ask for donations, I'm sure we could. And there's another, you know, income stream. But as of now, it's, it's a free service we're providing to get people fired up about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's free advertising at that point. Yeah, basically. And it's good. I mean, there's a lot of interested people. I uh, just need to keep kind of getting people interested mm -hmm. is the idea here. Cool. So people are kind of stuck on the monoculture. People are really mm -hmm. stuck on monoculture around here. I right. mean, corn plots, soy farms, peach orchards, really high input gardens. You know, they need pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, um, all of those things. Herb, you know, it's, it's high input gardening. They need fertilizer. They need weed killer. I mean, it's just a lot of work to do that. We don't do any of that. You know, we, we've taken out a lot of the steps that monoculture gardens have, and it just makes our life a lot much, a lot easier. Absolutely. Right. Have you been to the sunflower farm here? Uh, I, I want to say it's over toward I've Lexington. Okay. It is, I, I couldn't believe the soil when we walked in there. Do you think something to produce <laughs> such a large head? I mean, it was sand. Every yeah. Everything that it, everything that, that plant was eating had to have been brought in fertilizer yeah it's crazy yeah we have a strawberry farm that i don't live too far from i'm sure everybody knows it the coddle strawberry farm and it's a it's a monoculture of strawberries and their farm is open three months out of the year and they've got plastic covering the soil same story the soil is just as dead and dry and sandy and you know that they're trucking in fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides to kind of keep the thing going so you know, that's definitely a permaculture garden. You should be able to get food, at least on ours. We're getting food as early as February, March, and going all the way through to November. Nice. So we've got so many different things growing that you should be able to harvest something every month. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm from Kansas, and uh, just speaking of all that monocropping, uh, something that I've realized I've been noticing a lot lately is uh, about this time of year, the wind will start whipping up through neighborhoods really bad. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm every day I have to stop by a gas station and clean my windshields. And uh, all I can think is all of this came out of someone's yard, right? <laughs> like this is, and that's, that's really what happens when you don't, um, you know, like, like you said, it, it literally is like a moonscape that you're leaving in between the farming actually happening. And with permaculture, what we're trying to do is actually like, keep everything there and cover it up because nature doesn't like bare soil and and keep it on property you know that's something i i mentioned again last episode it was uh we we spend all this time and money 
paying for and maintaining a lawnmower and then all of the grass we harvested goes off property after that and so you're doing the same with the soil it's just getting blown away by the wind and it's like okay how do we keep it here and allow it to accumulate yeah i mean you're basically describing the conditions of the dust bowl i mean and yeah. we still have dust bowls happening and uh uh you know just you mentioned the the lawn clippings there i love turning my front yard into my backyard so my my front yard you wouldn't know that i was doing permaculture in the back i mean it's pretty clean cut it fits in with the neighborhood I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to really piss off my neighbors by having all of these things growing on my lawn mm -hmm. but i love mowing my lawn taking those clippings to the backyard and you know mulching with it i mean it, it becomes my soil for the backyard so yeah i mean those are the kind of things that you want to do as a, a gardener a local you know i'm, I'm living in suburban a suburbanite what can i do you know, those are the easy things you can do to build soil fertility and you're right uh, bare soil is the enemy i mean if you got bare soil mother nature is going to grow weeds to try to cover the soil and hold what's there down and you know the farmers they see that oh, i got weeds on my sandy i gotta go put the poison out to kill the weeds now and you're you're killing fertility you know you're killing a lot of topsoil doing that so it, it becomes a vicious cycle these monoculture gardens and it's just uh we if we intend to have a sustainable future we're gonna have to get away from monoculturing and move into something different and I'm just thinking that permaculture is going to have to be the answer if we want to have any kind of sustainable future. Absolutely. Yep. Perfect time to transition to the next one. How could permaculture be used to build resilience for communities? Yeah, great question. Um, and my, my good buddy, Jeff Lawton, I know a few people, uh, a couple guys from a YouTube channel called Eco Oasis. There are people out there that have developed permaculture you know, properties, uh, permaculture, you know, neighborhoods. So the whole entire neighborhood has been designed using permaculture. And there are fruits and shrubs and trees growing all over these neighborhoods for the people that live there. You know, the water is harvested off the, off the streets and off their houses. So um, it is possible to do. There are examples of permaculture being used to build resilient communities. Um, how can it be used? I mean, it, I don't think really it's more of how can it be used, but it should be used. Why should it be used? It should be used so that we can have more resilient communities. We should be growing things in our yards to stop with the, the, the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Okay, lawns, let's go, let's grow not lawns, but, but food. So uh, mm -hmm. eco-oasis is the big one that I can think of right off the top of my head. That is a good example of permaculture communities being built. And they're located in Costa Rica. And I know the guys pretty well. It's a guy from Florida and a guy from Wisconsin. It's a property developer from Wisconsin, got together with a permaculture designer from Florida. They moved down to Costa Rica. They bought a bunch of land and they started developing homes basically around their, their orchards that they were growing using permaculture techniques. So they are literal eco-villages, and it's self-sustaining. It is off the grid. It is being as self-sufficient as you can be, which, once again, if we want to have a sustainable future and get away from things like inflation, you're going to want to provide for yourself mm -hmm. a lot more than what you're doing right now, whoever you are out there listening. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's always the prime Perfect. example, right? Like, it's it's not even inflation necessarily that could kill you. Like, if all of a sudden the grocery store doesn't have something because supply chain issues, it's it's not even just the price that's the, that's the problem anymore. Like, we're actually seeing shortages. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so so I mean, having having a couple backyard chickens. You know, having a few rabbits on your property, even if you don't intend to eat the rabbits, you know, to use them as a rabbit tractor, which is what I do. The fact that you have that option available if there's no food at the store is nice to have. Yeah. It's nice to have eggs and not pay for eggs. I mean, my wife and I don't pay for eggs all year. So it's, it's you know, two or three dollars per pack per every shopping trip per a whole year. You're starting to save up money. Mm -hmm. saving money on vegetables because I'm growing kale and collards in our backyard. I mean, it it starts to add up over time. Now, is my home site providing for me 100% of my food supply? No, it's not. But the fact that I'm doing 30%, 35%, getting closer to 40% the longer I'm doing it, that little bit begins to help. And when you have communities coming together and doing this, which once again, happens in places like Costa Rica, happens a lot in Europe. There are, you know, communities in Europe that are eco, you know, minded and everybody's growing something. And when you get communities coming together to do that, hey, I might be growing grapes really well and my neighbor might grow apples really well and we can trade with each other and now we both got grapes and apples. So mm-hmm. it, it, it works the more people that do it. it. It builds like this momentum, the more and more people get involved and the more communities can come together and just implement some more uh, designs like this, more permaculture designs on their property. I mean, everybody's good at something. Some people are better at growing squash. Some people are better at growing tomatoes. You know, if you got your whole community thinking about growing something and then trading, you know, bartering, doing whatever you need to do, you, you can feed yourself really well. You, then you're getting to that point where, okay, our community as a whole can provide 100% of our food supply for us. We got, we got Larry the chicken guy over here, and we got Bobby the rabbit guy over here, and they're harvesting meat, and then they're getting vegetables from, from Bonnie, who loves doing carrots and tomatoes. So, you know, the tight-knit communities growing like this can be self-sufficient, which, once again, mm-hmm. if we want to have a sustainable future off the grid, getting away from the corporate overlords, this is going to be the way to do it. This is really freedom. And I, I came to know the philosophy of permaculture the more I got deeper into it. I mean, this is really about uh, true freedom. I mean, self-sufficiency is freedom. You know, the yeah. self-actualized person that can provide for themselves is free. That is freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's something that's been sort of a little debate between uh, me and some friends of mine is there you know uh i come from a a libertarian crowd and there's always this idea that like well you need the global economy to have a division of labor and i'm like no 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 wait a minute you start with division of labor and then what you do like you don't want to get to the point that you've got a corporation with a bureaucratic over you know like this huge top heavy organization that is separated from the actual work being done so we're not against division of labor at all i mean you were hitting on it already and we're you know we're what we're asking for is for people to actually you know like 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 i said earlier the grocery store is out in my backyard it's at my buddy's house it's 
in the community that we build together as opposed to you know trusting these faceless organizations who don't exactly have our interests at heart they're just you know taking every shortcut they can and using you know regulatory uh, capture and everything else to you know get into our pocket even further or worse you know now we're seeing actual lockdowns happening and it's like wait a minute i thought the livestock were these cows over here not me and so yeah, right. yeah so division of labor is still possible it's not that we're going to throw cucumbers at the state right it's that uh we we take away our dependency from those organizations that are part of the state or or the system that currently exists yeah correct yeah and i mean that's how they weaken them and how communities get stronger ultimately yeah you know, I'm not I'm not a big fan of Elon Musk, but he said a really good one the other day. He okay. said the government is he said the government is the biggest corporation, and mm -hmm. the crimes that they commit they get away with. Oh yeah. So it was pretty insightful to hear that out of him. You know, I'm not a big fan of his, but he actually said a smart one there, and he's right. I mean, the government is the biggest corporation out there, and its crimes are they don't they're not going to get prosecuted for the crimes that they're committing against hu uh, humanity. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, because they're the first one with the biggest conflict of interest. So Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, All right. so so how's the community thing going or, going on around your project? Tell us about the PRI. What are y'all trying to build out there? Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So let me. I'm just going to talk community about what Sammy's doing right now. So on okay. her half an acre, she's building community first off just by getting people interested in the store selling the produce that we got growing out there. So she's already getting people interested in what's, what's going on already. So we're starting to build a little bit of critical mass here. It's good, I like that. It's gotten Sammy motivated enough to already kind of open up her sphere of influence and see that, hey, there's this property right next door that we can, that we can purchase. It's got a, a two acre pond. It's got 20 acres of sprawling nothingness that we can shape and mold and turn into the a, a bigger property, you know, going from a half acre to 20 acres, that's a huge jump. And you're gonna be providing a lot of produce, a lot of nuts, a lot of fruits, a lot of, a lot of things that just one person can't eat. Uh, currently, what she's doing there is, I would say it's self-sufficient for a few families. You know, her family, her sisters, come and take partake of the food there right now. Uh, I'm, you know, getting a lot of fruit and vegetables out of there. Alex is getting, who's the, one of the other managers, her nephew, he's getting a lot of fruit and nuts and shrubs and stuff out of there. So it's, it's kind of a small self-sufficient thing right now. Um, if it were to expand and get bigger, obviously we can provide for a lot more people, which, which is the idea, ultimately. <clears throat> so she's trying to expand. Um, and that's where we're at with that right now. I mean, she's kind of working through the, uh, that whole process. Okay. Yeah, I know that's and been a, kind of a, a a weedy mess in itself. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a legal quagmire just because a lot of different people kind of own the property and getting in touch with all of them is has been a, a mess. But she's getting there, and I certainly expect her to you know get her hands on it. We've already kind of walked through the property, and I've already pulled up topo maps and sun charts to really start planning out what we could do. There's some beat up old infrastructure on the site that we can retrofit and turn into outhouses and storage facilities and processing plants, things like that. Um, certainly we wanna turn it 
like you say, into a PRI, a Permaculture Research Institute, where we can bring people in to stay for an extended period, for a short period, for a summer, for a few weeks, and work and learn how to implement these design elements on their own property, wherever they live. So um, it's a research institute. Certainly we wanna bring people in and teach people. It's also a money-making venture. I mean, don't get me wrong, man. I mean, we gotta grease the wheels. And if that means we're getting dollars in, cool. If maybe we can turn it into something where we're creating some sort of digital cryptocurrency for the community, maybe some sort of permacoin where people are using the permacoin to buy the fruit and vegetables that we got and we're kind of building you know once again critical mass we're getting people investing into the project using permacoin or something i mean i i certainly am open to expanding this to all avenues mm -hmm. that are available <clears throat> yeah um speaking of that i think uh something you know because like like we were talking about with all of the like the permaculture practices and the food production being a sort of a long long-term form of savings um my my particular interest in in this podcast is bitcoin and so i, I definitely want to be able to draw back to that and connect that 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 all of this goes together it's it's a savings technology and it's an ability not to be eroded you know like we're talking about soil erosion we also have value erosion and so right yeah it, we if, if you're going to do this sort of uh project it would make sense to incorporate that into it in one way or another yeah i mean I, I know that people would love to invest in a project like that maybe they're not capable of doing the physical labor but they want to be a yeah. shareholder they want to they want to donate to the project and you know hey maybe i can get a few baskets of fruit out of this and food out of this every year so I'm definitely looking at a decentralized way to, of course, feed people, but also get people that can't work in involved. I mean, once again, not everybody can come out there and dig ditches for a weekend. You know, that's, that's not going to be ideal. But you can put your money where your mouth is and invest in our project. Maybe we'll have a digital crypto perma coin that you can use to buy, sell, and trade at our, at our farm or just invest in the project using mm -hmm. some sort of digital, you know, coin you know it's it's something that's on my mind it's been on my mind and i'm certainly looking at all avenues of income of course mm -hmm. um, but also savings i mean this this whole permaculture thing is about saving saving soil saving people's lives in some cases uh, you know insanity i mean it keeps me sane going out there and gardening <laughs> sure oh yeah <laughs> absolutely um mm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where to head from there. I just keep every every time that the the topic of a potential PRI out there comes up, I, my head my head's in the clouds. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I get what something that I've always envisioned um, for that sort of situation would be some sort of CSA structure. Yes, but yes, ideally, I, yeah. you know, something that I thought would be cool to incorporate that is like, what if you had like a basically like a buyers club. And the buyers club all shows up to one person's farm to like you know uh, pick up whatever they get as part of the club, but maybe to be a member of the club, part of it is that you're putting into the basket that is at the pickup. So like you're one of the things that's in that basket, and so it ends up being like a collective effort where you get a basket of goods every week, and those goods are a collection of everything that everyone in the club made. I don't know. 
That's yeah, cool. I like that. There's, there, believe it or not, there are a few CSAs in Columbia that do that. There are a few gardeners yeah. that have come together with a CSA kind of over them, putting together, you know, putting the dots together, basically. You know, yeah. we, we do have centralized CSAs that are in contact with separate gardeners and farmers, and they are kind of pulling the resources together and then selling to the local community. Uh, the uh, Where I work as a physical therapist, we actually are associated with that CSA. We are selling the produce from that, you know, guy on top of the pyramid there, from the CSA. Huh. So. Those things are out there, and you know, here again, I've definitely thought mm -hmm. about that with this Permaculture Research Institute. I certainly want to get the infrastructure out there for, you know, a tiny home community. I mean, people that come out are going to need a place to stay. So uh, certainly, I'd like to get a tiny home community, get a little yurt village set up. Um, maybe and maybe you know, add it as part of a, a an eco tourist spot to come. You know, people that want to come and vacation on a permaculture garden. Well, come on out. You know, we got a two acre pond. You can float around. You can go fishing. You can pick food right out the forest. It's 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 a, a true garden of Eden. So it's it's nice to be able to show people that maybe give them the opportunity to see what life could be like and change some minds. It's, it's not always boots on the ground. I mean, you can get, once again, a lot of different people motivated in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the PRI, the, the Research Institute, just becomes the vessel to do that. So you're right. You can keep your head in the clouds for days and days and weeks and weeks because it's, it's a multifaceted project that is going to touch a lot of different lives. Yeah, there's just so much potential. It's not, yeah, it's not just a supermarket where you come and get your food. It's not just that. And that's the whole like thought philosophy about permaculture. I mean, there's mm -hmm. something for everyone and you can get everyone involved to be more free, more self-sufficient, uh, more self-sustaining. I mean, for mental health and well-being, for physical health and well-being. I mean, food is medicine. You know, going back to how I got into this, I mean, food was my medicine and and truly heal people with this kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it, it becomes this multifaceted thing that you can think about for days and days. Really, I'd mm -hmm. like to get it started because I want to implement all these things. It's been Absolutely. nice to see on a small scale, doing it on a bigger 20 acre scale is gonna be even more fun. And then when you can get farmers in this area who maybe I was a monocropper on 20 acres, but I see this permaculture model, how it works. And man, I can expand my horizons. Now, I was talking about getting your local community together, one small house and another. Imagine if you got bigger communities together. We're talking, oh, I'm going to take my 20 acres and do permaculture. I'm going to take my 20 acres and do permaculture. Now you're getting, now you're getting a small ball rolling into something that's even bigger. And now you're talking not just community resilience, but a whole city can be resilient or a whole city can be off of the grid and away from the corporate conglomerates that are sucking them dry. Yep. Yeah. Oh, what's that? Uh, what's that factoid about how many miles, um, like beef will travel every year or something? What? It, oh, what do they call yeah, the that? International the, traveling beef or something? Yeah. The the petrodollars or whatever that it takes to get to your doorstep, something like that. Yeah. There's, well, because there's, 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 there's that a thing about it, like too. you know, the rancher make makes the beef in Kansas. It gets shipped up to South Dakota to get processed. It ends up somewhere at an aggregator, and then it finally ends up at the Walmart back in Kansas, where next to the guy who made it. And it it really is. It's just you're sending it off to let all of these third parties get their cut on it before it finally ends up at like the local grocery store. And it's it's ridiculous if you think about it. 
So I've seen uh, I've seen and heard here recently at Tyson Farms, one of the biggest you know chicken mm-hmm. producers and pork producers. So a, a Chinese company has basically bought them out. You know they're they're basically China owned at this point. So imagine growing the pork here, shipping it to China, and then shipping it back here once it's been processed. There's things like that happening right now. So yeah, we've gotten away from local community and like the, the, the multi-corporational conglomerate, they want this globalist uh, economy and it's just not sustainable. Here again, I mean, it's not sustainable to ship your pork to China or to Mexico, get it processed only to ship it back to the same town that the, the meat or the pork was grown in. I mean, you're touching on a mm-hmm. obvious problem with our current uh, economic model. And it, once again, if we want to have some sort of sustainable future, it's not going to be in multinational corporations shipping off our food to one area only to bring it right back in, in a couple weeks. It's yeah, you know, no kidding. Actually pretty stupid if you sit and really think about it and hear <laughs> right. it. Right. Yeah, like the only <laughs> the only time I can even see a use for it is like if you have really specialized equipment like you're maybe Samsung making TVs or something, but like I mean, farming is if you think of it, it's such a basic thing that people should know how to do at a scale that is so self-sufficient that there's no like you can see how people would think economies of scale would make it where you've got you know corporation a doing uh beef and corporation b doing chicken or whatever and they sell it at a really great price but it's it just doesn't turn out that way and you end up getting lower quality food and you end up with a poison in it you know it's it's ridiculous like yeah <laughs> yeah, ultimately yeah you're right yeah you're right yeah i was just <laughs> nobody tell the appalachian agorist because he'll be on a rant for a week about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is just how a fiat economy functions basically this yeah. doesn't happen on a hard money standard yeah that too uh, uh yeah. okay so what what else do we have on the docket here um okay so let's say you're just someone with a suburban backyard i know you've touched about this already what's uh what's a good place to point them to to get started because obviously getting your foot in the door and starting is better than sitting around in analysis paralysis gotcha exactly and uh i'm just gonna say start small start slow the best thing you can do is learn a vegetable garden and companion plant a vegetable garden learn what vegetables grow well with each other anybody can do a vegetable garden it's an annual thing. So, I mean, hey, if I screwed it up during the spring, that's fine. Let's start again in the fall and do a fall garden and try to learn again what plants go well together. Um, for, for anybody wanting to start into permaculture, kind of like me, learn vegetables, learn herbs, learn what fruits and vegetables and herbs kind of come together and grow well together. Learn how to square foot gardening, how to pack a lot of things together in one small space so you're not just growing a row of tomatoes a row of green beans. I mean, you can grow a lot of vegetables really close together and have a nutrient-dense, literally, uh, vegetable plot. Um, Mm -hmm. Resources. I'll get into some resources. First off, the best resource is the Permaculture Design Manual. Uh, And the title of that is Permaculture, a Design Manual by Bill Mollison, the, the, the father of permaculture. So if you don't have a hard copy of that book, I would suggest go ahead and spending the 100, 125 bucks that it costs, get it to have a hard copy of it. It's worth it to have it. It is invaluable information. Now, I have a PDF copy of it. I wish I had a hard copy and I'm probably gonna buy one here eventually. Um, other good books for the beginner. Here, I got one right here. 
Carrots Love Tomatoes by Luis Riott. This is like the vegetable companion planting guide. It's a, an encyclopedia of vegetables and what vegetables grow well with each other. So let me just flip to a page. I'm gonna, uh, okra, this native old world tropic is grown for its immature pods. Okra grows well with eggplant, with green beans, and with uh, parsley. So it's got companion plants in this book. It'll tell you what plants go well with other plants. And like the book's title, carrots love tomatoes. You can have a row of tomatoes and interplanted have a carrots with them. So now you're kind of stacking functions of plants on top of each other. A carrot is a root crop. It, it, it grows in the ground. It has a root exudate that the tomato plant will actually suck up through its root system and it makes the tomato plant hardier. So you have two vegetables growing on top of each other and they're not competing. They're in cooperation with each other. And that's the whole idea. Once you can kind of get these small concepts of plants cooperating, not competing, it's gonna make sense on a grand scale when you're growing trees and shrubs right on top of them, understanding how they're gonna have this cooperation and, and, and not this competition between them. So uh, Carrots Love Tomatoes, definitely a good book. Luis Riott, another good book for just about any beginner. Another one of my favorites, uh, Herbal Remedies. This is a visual reference guide by Andrew Chevalier. Um, and it's the same thing. It's a visual herbal reference book. It's going to give you pictures of herbs. It's going to tell you what herbs grow well with each other, how to use those herbs medicinally. A visual guide. It tells you how to use them, how to prepare herbs. So, I mean, I got one here, Echinacea. It's a whole plant. Its key action is antibacterial, antiviral. It's a blood cleanser. It's immune enhancing, and it's a wound healer. And then it tells you the preparations, how to prepare echinacea. You can make um, uh, tinctures. You can make capsules. You can grind it up and make capsules. It tells you how to prepare the roots, how to prepare the flower. So a good one for any beginner, Herbal Remedies by Andrew Chevalier. I would say those three books, the Permaculture Design Manual, Carrots Love Tomatoes, and the Herbal Remedies books are gonna be great for any beginner. Those are gonna give you like the, the best foothold. And these are books that you're gonna go back to over and over again. I continue to read this book eight years later because I'm growing some, some new vegetable and I wanna find out what grows well with that vegetable. So for the beginner, try those resources. Also, just start growing in a small vegetable garden. Once you learn and can see how plants cooperate each other on a small scale, on a bigger scale, it'll start to make sense. You know, then you're growing nitrogen-fixing shrubs with your trees, understanding that they're helping each other. They're not in competition. And that's one of the big things with monoculture. Once again, I'm gonna go back to it because for them, everything's in competition. The weeds are competing with my trees. The other trees are competing with my trees. Like nature has cooperation for the most part. And mm -hmm. those are the kind of uh, the patterns that you're gonna wanna learn. So learning it on a small scale is going to be good. You'll be able to level it up on a bigger scale, ultimately. Uh, so those are my favorite resources and the favorite way for you know the beginner to kind of get into permaculture. Vegetables, herbs, start there. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'll go sideways here for a second. Um, there sure. is a mobile application that does a lot of the function that 
uh, Carousel of Tomatoes is looking to serve uh, called Seed to Spoon that shows uh, friends and enemies is the way they describe it for different plants because there are some vegetables that really don't like to be near each other. They got something that they put out that the other doesn't like. Um, that's right. That's it's that's, that's right. a very useful tool as well when you're kind of like planting out the garden to see plant by plant you go through and like, all right, I got to make sure at least these guys are separated from each other. You're right. Yeah. Nightshades. There's some nightshades that don't like to be planted with other plants. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So knowing, knowing the, the good companions and also the bad companions is, is very helpful. And here again, on a larger scale, you're going to want to know those things because things like black walnut has jugalone in its root system and it's going to mm -hmm. inhibit the growth of other plants. But there are plants that grow well with black walnut. Pawpaws do just fine with black walnut. Um, Iliagnus, which is a nitrogen-fixing shrub, it does great with black walnut. So, yeah, know the good companions, know the bad companions. Um, taking that out one step further, no good bugs and no bad bugs, because every yard is going to have good bugs and bad bugs. And knowing what to plant to call in the good bugs and chase out the bad bugs is going to be helpful as well. Um, permaculture is everything. We're talking plants, but I want you to know, I know a lot about you know, insects. I know a lot about birds. I'm a beekeeper as well. I mean, that's part of the whole system design. You know, you're, you're not just designing a, a food forest to feed people. You're designing a holistic system for all of nature to come to and work at. So mm -hmm. I know the pest cycles as well here in South Carolina. I know when the cabbage moth is going to be here. I know when aphids are going to be at the worst time of the year. So knowing the bad bug cycles is also going to help you as the gardener know when to plant things. If I know that I plant squash early because the squash bug comes a little later in the season, well, then I can plant all my squash super early. Um, you know, permaculture includes everything into it. It's not just plants. It's plants. It's animal husbandry. It's you're going to be an entomologist. You're going to be a beekeeper. You're going to be everything when it comes to permaculture. And that's what I learned getting into this. I wasn't just learning herbs. I'm learning herbs. I'm learning insects. I'm learning animals. I'm learning bees. I'm learning the whole thing. So uh, you'll be a well-rounded individual just picking up the design manual and, and going through it, mm -hmm, even absolutely. if you don't have a science background like me. <clears throat> yeah, it's almost like, you know, at one point in time, I think human beings could uh, just sit around and relax and maybe notice that, you know, when the bugs are out and notice when the sun was uh, moving a certain way and you know we're we're so we're such indoor cats now you know we just don't we don't know what's going on in our own backyard and what you're talking about is really just like knowing what's around you you know and I, it's funny i had a uh, you know so once again I'm a, I'm a physical therapist i work with a lot of boomers a lot of old people and i had an old boomer tell me one time that we would be in the middle of, we could be in the middle of a food crisis. No food at the store. People could be dying on the streets and not even know that there's food all around them. Hey, there's nuts in those pine trees. Hey, I can eat that weed over there. Hey, mm -hmm. I can eat this. I can eat that. Like there's a lot of, you know, old timers, I'll say boomers who had to survive through the depression and they, they did it and they were able to do it because they were more self-sufficient. And when I talk to people like that and they tell me that, yeah, a lot of people would die today because they don't know how to take care of themselves. They just they don't even know that they could be surrounded by food and not even know it. They could be starving and, and, and there's food right next to them and they wouldn't even know it. 
Dude, you just reminded me. I had a I've I've got a friend of mine who's a mom and uh they had some of her kids' friends over and she cooked dinner and her fr- her kids' friends asked uh what restaurant she got it from. I was like this oh my gosh, like we we've gotten that far, haven't we? <laughs> it was that yeah, bad. Yeah. Um let me ask you uh have you heard of uh, mini farming by Brett Markham? Uh, I've heard of mini farming, but I haven't heard of that book or Brett Markham. No, okay, uh, but uh, I like it. This is I one. Like this is one uh, Jack Spierko recommended on his podcast, I think, a couple of years ago, and it's really it goes like it's basically exactly what you're talking about. Like he starts off and he's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna do like a step by step how to get started here, and he he does the interplanting and all of that. Um, but he basically like the chapter two first, you know, basically the first like getting into it thing he does is he says. Uh, if you can grow 80% of your own food in your backyard, and I think it, you know, it's, it's self-sufficiency on a quarter acre. So it's, here's a quarter acre of, uh, garden beds. And, um, he says, okay, so here's the average medium income at the time, I think was about 2000. Well, the studies he was referencing were from 2004, but he's like, here's the average medium income. If you can grow all of this in your own yard, how much money do you save? And he's literally saying like, uh, I spend maybe 10 hours a weekend working on this. So like, uh, whatever that is over a whole year and he's making, he's doubling, effectively doubling his income. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I'm, you know, that kind of like synergy is what I just look for in everything these days. It's incredible to, to see. Yeah, I like Jack Spierko. I've I've certainly you know subscribed to him. I've seen his YouTube videos. He's he's good. I like Jack. I certainly watch anything from Jeff Lawton, another one mm-hmm. of those fathers of permaculture. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the Eco Oasis channel. Those are a good group of guys to see. You know, they're in a tropical environment, so you're probably not gonna be able to grow what they're growing. But to to mm-hmm. see an eco community is always good. Yeah. yeah, I like Jack Spierko. I think I, I learned a lot from him on animal husbandry. Ducks, he does a lot of ducks as well. He yeah. raises ducks. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I do like Jack. He's, he's a good guy. What's <laughs> the name of that one? I don't even know where it's at anymore. Uh, Village Homes? Have you heard That's of California. That? That's California? Okay, yeah, they're mm-hmm. doing a similar thing out there where it's like the there's like a communal permaculture forest in the middle, but then each backyard that's kind of on the spokes going out from that is like um divided among like let's say you've got like four houses in a i don't even know what you would call it a cul-de-sac i guess and they have a communal backyard area where they're allowed to run their own chickens and stuff and they have to maintain it themselves but they've got like the the company that actually owns the i guess you would call it like the hoa but the permaculture hoa will manage the interior part that's the full-blown food forest that they uh use so everybody's got like their own section but then there's the big the big part of it that the company manages and it yeah it's really cool (laughs) yeah once again that's that's gonna need to be the future if we want to have any kind of sustainable future at all yep Mm -hmm. beautiful absolutely beautiful well, you got any more, uh, Jared, before we... That's what I can think of at the moment. Okay. Maybe run oh, through it pretty got well. Got them all, right? Boom, That's right. Got yeah. them all. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, 
Oh, oh, uh, maybe maybe you can explain a quote for us really quickly. Okay. This oh, is a quote. quote from my good buddy Tori. Um, that yeah. beta cucks drive Teslas and gigachads restore ecosystems. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's this illusion that you're doing something for the environment when you you jump in an electric car. Yeah, I gotcha. That's kind of like the kids that ask the mom, "Oh, what restaurant did this come from?" I mean, the the disconnect between reality is is so big right now that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that people are going to have to break through to kind of get back to reality and. Uh, uh, I think we're slowly going through that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are awake out there. I don't know how else to put it, but who are in tune with, you know, being a little more self-sufficient, in tune with the fact that, hey, we're being fed poison by these big multinational corporate conglomerates, and it's not getting any better. It's going to get worse, obviously. So um, people need to definitely come together, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 Not my quote. I can't take credit for that one, though. I cannot take credit for that one, Jerry. That's that's uh, where'd it come uh, from? My quote. No, no clue. No clue. Some memer, obviously, out there. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll just leave it to the internet. It's fine. Sure. Yeah, that's yep. right. That's right. Credit real, internet. Real chads grow. Real yep. chads grow. <laughs> All right. So. Uh, uh, give us uh, your YouTube channel and any other plugs uh, you want to give, and then we'll go ahead and sign off. Yeah, no doubt. The, the best way to reach me is my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com backslash permaculture homestead. It's all one word, permaculture homestead. And you'll find my channel there. There's an information tab that will connect you to the Facebook page that we have. I rarely use the Facebook page. That's just the, the only social media that I've got connected to it. Uh, on the, the YouTube site, you'll be able to find my email for business inquiries if you're interested in having some design work done and you're in the South Carolina area. Um, currently, I'm trying to only work with people in the South Carolina area. I know this area. I know this biome. I know what grows well. And uh, I'm not trying to venture too far out of my sphere of influence right now. Um, there are designers in every state across the country. You might have to, to work a little hard to find them, but they are there. They are out there, and there are resources out there uh, for you to do what we're talking about uh, on your own. Uh, ultimately, it's my goal for people here in South Carolina. I want to empower people to do what I'm doing on their own. So I will um, counsel somebody. I'll talk to them. I'll do a meeting. I'll maybe give them a design. I might implement the design for them. After that, it's kind of their baby from there on out so uh, it's it's my goal with the consultations to get you started show you the ropes and then you're on your own kind of thing I mean the, the whole point of this is to be self-sufficient so I certainly want to get more projects started uh, as we continue to go along here using the Permaculture Research Institute and using lock layers as a design uh, demonstration garden you know so we mm -hmm. have a lot of tours we're still doing tours if you're ever interested in coming out and seeing our project, once again, find me on YouTube, go subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel, go jump to us on Facebook where I generally post when I'm doing those tours at the, uh, the, the garden at Lock Layers. Um, that's my plug. I appreciate you all having me out here tonight, guys. A really fun discussion. I didn't think that we'd uh, geek out this hard, but we geeked <laughs> out this hard. 
Yeah, this has been really great. Really appreciate yeah, you appreciate help, joining us. Me, man. And, uh, if we can just wake up one person, I'll be happy. That's all I'm looking for. Hell yeah. Heck yeah. Awesome. Yep. All right. Well, uh, cheers, guys. Peace and love. Yep, thank you, Corey. <laughs> Take it easy, Jared. I'll see you all, I'll see you all soon. All right. Thank you, Corey. <laughs>